I'm Stuart Kelter, and this is Delving In. Today's guest, Sarah Lamb, is a professor of cultural anthropology at Brandeis University who focuses on how people construct their socio-cultural world and identity from the interlocking multiple dimensions of age, gender, the body, family, religion, and nation. From the points of view of those she studies, she explores the experiences and the often taken-for-granted assumptions of people in West Bengal, India, and among Indian immigrants as well as older white Americans in the San Francisco area, Boston, and Bible Belt of the United States. Sarah is the author of several books and is the recipient of several major grants and awards, including a 2019 to 2023 Andrew Carnegie Fellowship. Her most recent book, Being Single in India, Stories of Gender, Exclusion, and Possibility, is the subject of today's interview. So Sarah, welcome to Delving In. So Sarah, welcome to Delving In. Thank you, Stuart. It's a pleasure to be here. So first off, tell us about your interest in India and how the place of women in India has changed over the time. And how did your interest in all those things develop? Yes, some of it is maybe arbitrary and by chance. I have no family connections to India, no relatives in India. But uh, when I went into anthropology as a graduate student, I had already been interested in India from my undergraduate years studying religious studies at, at Brown University, where I had uh, some fantastic professors who had specialized in India. When I went into anthropology for my PhD, I decided to focus on India and have been going there ever since for the past 30 years or so doing field work, talking with people. And I've, I usually try to go every year. I, and I started studying Bengali partly because the Bengali language instructors at University of Chicago were so in love with the language, they recruited me to study Bengali instead of one of the even more major languages such as Hindi in India. So I specialize in West Bengal, India when I'm there. And yes, I've seen a lot of change over the years in terms of gender and families. And it's been quite remarkable, really. And West Bengal kept its name West Bengal, even though East Bengal is now Bangladesh, right? That's right. So West Bengal is a major state in India, and it's, it, it shares a language and actually a lot of cultural heritage with Bangladesh. They both, I, people from both regions identify as Bengali. And, and was it a difficult language to learn? I didn't really think so. I think the pronunciation in general and grammatical structure is probably easier than English. And quite a beautiful language, actually. And there's a lot of literature and poetry, culture, art in, in Bengali. And I've really enjoyed it. So one thing that's, I guess, special about India, and there are many things, <laughs> is that there are very few non-married uh, women. That's right. So I had been uh, studying other things, focusing on other things for many years, especially regarding aging in India and wrote a few books on that topic. But over the years of, of studying aging in, in both rural and urban contexts, I had met a lot of unmarried women, actually, women who never married. But actually, it's a very small overall percentage in India, less than 1% of women never marry, one of the lowest non-marriage rates in the world. But the never married women were really interesting. They grabbed my attention and um, some of them said, look, you should study us, you should write about us. And so that became one of my recent projects that I was a sort of a pet project of mine, a real interest 
And I just collected stories of so many never married women across social classes and um, ended up writing a book about that over the during the pandemic when I couldn't go back to India to do more field work. And I thought, OK, let me just write this book. And it was, I think, my favorite book to write. And that's the one that just came out recently that you mentioned, Being Single in India. And I'm sure we'll get to talk quite a bit about how difficult it is to be single. I, the stigma from what you've written and what I can just imagine is enormous, the stigma against being single and, and the value of marriage. Of course, every culture values some kind of marriage, I think, for pretty obvious reasons for reproduction and social structure and so on. And it's only pretty recently that singlehood, if I can say it that way, is uh, considered an okay option, at least in certain maybe urban educated uh, populations. You, you use the term elite quite a bit. I, I think by elite, you mean privileged, wealthy, urban, sophisticated. Yes, I do. So I use the word elite in my writing about India, yeah, to refer to those people who are urban, cosmopolitan, English-speaking, often prefer English to one of the their mother tongues, and have also lived and traveled abroad a lot. And that world of those people is so different from the everyday experiences and class and cultural worlds of the majority of people in India. And among those elite people, then, being single is more of an option now than ever before. And and it's that's been getting a lot of interesting news attention in India. Of course, it's probably the a very small minority everywhere, just smaller minority in India, but it's pretty small even in the US. And I would imagine that using the word elite again of, of being sophisticated, urban, cultured, and so on, the people of that characterization would have more in common with each other in, in different countries. Exactly. To their own people in their own country. There's a commonality. Yeah. yeah, exactly. There isn't that much difference culturally and in terms of everyday experiences, I think, among this elite groups, wherever they live around the world, there's a kind of a shared global culture. It's quite uh, striking. And yes, you're right that in any culture and across history, marriage has normal, acceptable adult and for reproduction and fitting in. There's all sorts of privileges and there's scholars focusing on the kinds of privileges attached to marriage in the United States as well. And one thing I find in the United States is there's a tremendous pressure to be coupled up. So marriage itself is less of an obligation in the U.S. than it used to be and less than in India for most people. But still, there's a lot of pressure to be coupled up. You're invited to parties. You should bring a significant other or something. And a lot of assumptions that you're going to be a happier person if you're in a relationship. So that's something I kept in mind throughout this project too, that India is not the only place where where being married or being part of a couple is a pressure and an expectation. Right. And, and then in the US, it has become more acceptable to be a single parent, whether single from the beginning or whether single for, by way of divorce. Uh, it's become a kind of a thing. W one item I came across in your book that I hadn't heard of before was Singles Awareness Day which apparently is on February 15th, right after Valentine's Day. And it seemed like a kind of compensatory holiday. And the acronym is SAD. <laughs> Very sad. I had never heard of that either. It's less, much less famous than Valentine's Day. But after I had come back from one of my fieldwork trips in India, focusing on never married women, then it happened to be 
February 15th. And uh, I turned on the radio and there was talk about how today is Singles Awareness Day Sad. And uh, there was a story about how several bars and nightclubs in the U.S. were offering discounts to single people. And they were supposed to come in and bring photographs of their ex to burn in the bonfire out of anger. And it just struck me, okay, it's assumed that everyone would have an ex which isn't always the case in India. There's a lot of pressure that if a woman's not married, she's not supposed to have any relationship at all. And also just this whole notion that it's sad to be single, that is takes shape in different ways in different cultural and national contexts. It really struck me. Other than the urban elites, it sounds extraordinarily difficult to be a single woman in India, Also, but, but also not so easy to be a married woman either. I think it'd be really helpful at this point to hear about the patrilineal kinship system in India. You know, what is it? How does it work? Okay, yes, that's so important. So India is such a large and nation, varied nation. There's different ethnic groups. There are some parts of India that practice more matrilineal marriage, but the majority of Indians, both Hindu and Muslim, have patrilineal kinship systems. And the expectation is that the key elements of the family line travels from father to son. So there's tremendous pressure on sons to get married also and to have children to carry on the family line. And some men who don't marry, such as some gay men and others, also face stigma and just real concern from their parents. What's going to happen to you in old age? What will happen to our family if we have a death of the lineage? But what happens... For girls, most girls are expected to marry out of the family, and they would then go to live with their husband and his family, their in-laws. Sometimes they'll set up a house of their own. They won't always live with their in-laws, but they would. the expectation is they would leave their parents' home and go and be now a full member of their husband's and in-laws' family. And, um, and that's the key way for girls and women to still have kinship is to get married and to be then secure in their husband's family and then to have kids of their own with whom they would be very close. And it's not, there's not the idea that a girl would live with her parents forever. That's not considered normal or usual. So her place in the kinship system is a little bit precarious if she doesn't marry. Yeah, it's so different from here where the, you marry and you might wind up being closer to one family or the other, depending on which one is more generous or closer to. But there it's really specified that the, the bride loses her family in a way, not completely, but, but all her efforts and her, if she earns money and uh, the, the caretaking, if, if when the parents get old, the, it's the daughter-in-law that takes care of the, her parents-in-law which seems very odd. That is the most conventional, and it wouldn't yeah, be considered odd to people in India at all. There is some variety, especially now if a girl or woman earns her own money, more of those women can continue to give some money to their parents if they wish, and also to have the agency to visit their parents and care for their parents when they're old. So that is one of the elements of social change over the past decades in India for working women. They have many more options to be close to their natal kin. But conventionally, 
they, a lot of girls and women before marriage, they don't know if they will be able to do that or not. It, if their in-laws let them or their husband lets them or if they manage to be able to sneak around. So there is, it really is an idea that you might be really losing a lot of the most important relationships in your life when you marry. And that's one reason some women who have the capacity to choose are choosing not to marry. Yeah, as you uh, describe in your book, one of the reasons not to marry is to be able to care for perhaps a very poor family of origin. I'll use that term, and this is the same as the term natal, that you've described women who came from a very poor family, and because they went to work, they were, let's say, the oldest or one of the oldest of the children, they were able to bring their families out of poverty and made sure that the other siblings married and they sacrificed their own lives for the others and often feeling good about it, feeling this is what gave their life meaning. Mm -hmm. That was one of the key themes that I found that really hadn't been written or talked about much in other literature I found or in the popular news stories about the new wave of single women in India. Uh, I hadn't seen stories like this, but it was a key theme of mine that I found talking to women that if, especially, as you said, if they were born and raised in a very poor family, it could be an extreme situation of poverty in a village or refugee family had come from East Bengal or Bangladesh to Calcutta. And the oldest girl, if she was industrious and hardworking and smart, or she could be a middle child even, she often started earning and she would feel that her family couldn't survive if she were to marry and those earnings would then would go to her husband's family. Yeah, they often chose to to not marry. It's a difficult choice often. And one woman I call Chukidi, which means happy older sister, she she's confessed later to me. And she was in her 70s, and I knew her for many years. She said, it's not that I never loved. I did love someone. I loved someone very much. All girls fall in love. I loved someone. But if I had married, how would my brothers and sisters survive? How would my parents survive? I was the one earning the most money in our family. And she said, he begged me to marry him. He said he'd wait. And I said, she said to him, no, now is your time to marry. You you should marry. What will be the use? Wait till we're old man and old woman. So by force, I, I convinced him to marry and he married someone else. But she still really fondly remembered him and yearned for what could have happened if she had married him? She imagined she could have grandchildren now who would be around her instead of living all alone in her last years. And one thing that I think that's important to bring up is is the the level of poverty in India is something that's almost unfathomable from an American point of view. Here in this U.S., I think most poor people still have phones and TVs and refrigerators and heat in their house, probably. Uh, maybe they, sometimes they can't pay for it, but it's there. Whereas in India, none of those things might exist. They might have no refrigeration, no electricity, no running water. It sounds so dire and, and not enough to eat. So when we're talking about, uh, let's say, an older uh, daughter going to work to support the rest of her birth family, it's we're talking about life and death. Yeah, absolutely. That's so true. And I've spent a lot of time in village areas like that also. When I first was doing my dissertation research years ago, I lived in a village for a year and a half and really got to know the cycles and the nature of village life. There's comfortable people living in villages and 
people experiencing extreme poverty. And I still go visit some of these areas, right? Some families only, they're lucky if they have one meal a day, even barely a meal a day and barely a home to live in might be not just a nice mud hut, but the walls collapsing in and not enough to eat. It's If it's a matter of life and death, starving to death or not, you could certainly imagine a girl, a young woman thinking, if I can get a little food into these families' mouths, and they're, then it's worth it. And their jobs are often not, it's not like a salaried position. And one of the women I know who never married and is proud that she didn't because she could support her family, she would work wash, from a young age five, washing clothes in other people's homes, fishing, working as a day laborer in the rice fields, a lot of manual labor that she still does now in her 50s to, to feed her family. And she's proud that she did that. Yeah, and one of the really poignant examples was a, a girl of seven or eight sent away by the family to live as a live-in maid, pretty much, with a wealthy family, seven or eight. And then she sent money back home at seven or eight. And she still does. That's right. So she, I call her Nayani. That's her pseudonym. I'm still close with her. We exchange WhatsApps messages frequently. And in fact, I should say that she ended up getting married. So oh, wow. after I published the book. At, at, and, at what age? In, in her early 40s, which is really almost unheard of in India, that women, the majority of girls and women get married below age 20. There's even a lot of women getting, girls getting married below age 15, even in West Bengal, a large percentage. But, and people consider that after 30 or 35, you, you could never get married. During the pandemic, she realized just how alone she was she went on Facebook. She found this guy. I was worried that, ooh, is he going to be abusive? But actually, I was invited to the wedding. I couldn't go, but I saw videos of it. And then I met him last winter, and they seemed happy. But to go back to her early story, she, wait, when she was just about eight, age seven, her family needed some income. Plus, they had too many daughters. They didn't know how they would support these girls. And so they sent her to an family in Calcutta to be their domestic servant. She recalls crying and crying. She had never been away from home before, but she ended up growing up there. The family never sent her to school, but she learned to read and write by looking over the shoulder of the other kids in the house. She learned to speak in very high-class Bengali to cook the most elegant high-class Bengali foods. And she carries herself if you meet her, she seems like her manner is a very elite, high-class person from living with this family for over 20 years. But eventually, the kids grew up and moved off and got married, and the older people died. And she was basically just left on her own. She actually left before some of them died because of turmoil happening in the household. And she had to manage just living an ordinary life. She had never been on public transportation before with all the screaming. She had always ridden in elite cars. So she had a kind of a mismatched class background, which made it basically impossible to marry, although she would have wanted to, because her background by birth was as a poor village girl, but her kind of daily habits were as a very elite Bengali, and it made her almost unmarriageable. 
so almost my fair lady, but without the language therapist. She became this kind of princess in terms of her presentation. You're exactly right. That's exactly right. And and of course, it's not every woman's and girl's dreams to marry. There's women in the book who didn't want to marry, but she always did. And so I guess I'm pleased that she found this guy, and I hope it continues to work and that his family won't be abusive towards her. Well, before we go on, let me just identify the station in case you're just joining us. You're listening to Delving In on KTALLP 101.5 FM, your community radio station in Las Cruces. I'm Stuart Kelter. My guest today is Sarah Lamb, a professor of cultural anthropology at Brandeis University and the author of the recent book, Being Single in India, Stories of Gender Exclusion and Possibility. So I'd like to talk a little bit more about the patrilineal and patriarchal system, specifically about the stigma about being single, being a single woman, and also the level of pr- protection on the one hand and control, on the other hand, of a woman's sexuality and mobility even, that it sounds so incredibly extreme that, that women are cloistered, maybe not quite as much as in some Arab countries, but somewhat close. Right. There is just a lot of the, the reason why marriage is so important to so many families and individuals in India, it does surround ideas that is the way to channel a woman's sexuality and that a woman is dangerous. If, and of course, there are always exceptions. The most elite people that I hung out with for this project could live in apartment buildings where there was privacy. They could have lovers if they wanted. There were a few lesbian women that I also had the privilege of spending time with for this project. And so there are some women who are able to have meaningful love and sexual relationships outside of marriage. But for the majority of women in India, then the only legitimate way people feel very strongly often to have any kind of sexual relationship is within marriage. And that's one of the main reasons women are often married so young by their families. The families become quite terrified that they might get pregnant out of wedlock or do something wrong, maybe take up with someone of a different caste, a lower caste. And the people I know living in rural West Bengal still think it's best to get the girl married within a few years of starting menstruating. So, and then even those who manage to have professional careers live in urban areas still, there's so much gossip among neighbors. Where were you if you came in a little bit later from work? Uh, Maybe you had coffee with some of your girlfriends or colleagues, but you're coming in a little later. People will say, where was she? They so much gossip and talk. And then some uh, apartment buildings have explicit rules, not just implicit rules, but explicit rules that single women cannot stay in the apartment building. Yeah, let, let me just quote from your book here about this topic. The implicit ideology is that the risk of sexual impropriety from the unmarried woman spreads from the individual woman to her sisters and the rest of her family, to the people in her building, to the whole neighborhood. People quarantine the source of contagion or expel it, get her married off, refuse to rent her a room, keep her from settling down in the family home, separate her from others. There's a real sense of danger, not just to the woman or girl, but to the Everyone. That's true. That was one of the main things that would come out in people's stories. And there, in this one village where I was spending some time, there were two unmarried sisters. Their father had died when they were young. Their family was in poverty. They didn't have enough money for a dowry or just to even seem like attractive 
made. So these two sisters ended up not being married. And I met them when they were in their around late 20s, early 30s. They said they weren't even able to go to family gatherings like weddings when it was going to be mixed gender because people were so worried that they would, that some man or boy, even a relative would find them and fall in love with them or have sexual relations with them. And so it's just so cloistered, at least they had each other, but it was a terribly restricted life. And so many stories like that I would hear. And they wouldn't even necessarily be allowed to go to anyone's house where there might be boys or men, whether married or unmarried, that there was a threat that there could be a temptation to a married man. And so better, I guess they would only be allowed out, and this is in the most extreme example, to all women gathering. Right, that's right. And I tried to persuade uh, the two girls to go with me to the tea stall in, in their village to have some tea. And I finally was able to persuade them to go with me, but the local men teasing us, oh, these girls coming out. It, it's, was very, it's very hard. And then actually even more elite women too. So there's a lot of single professors in India women professors, because they get so educated. And a lot of people feel that the groom should be superior to the bride. So if a woman gets- In every way but looks. In every way but looks, <laughs> right. Yeah, that, that was a line that I heard a few times. The bride should be beautiful, supposedly fair, beautiful, etc. But she should not be more educated than her husband. So if a woman gets a PhD, it's hard for her to marry. So a lot of professors in India are unmarried and some are perfectly happy with that status. They're glad that they have the independence and agency to let's say work on a paper without making their husband tea and things like that. But they do resent the fact that other women Married colleagues, women will think of them as sexually dangerous. So maybe not invite them to a dinner party if they're having other people over, other colleagues over. Maybe don't invite the single woman because there's a fear that she'll be sexually voracious or that other men will think that she's sexually attractive and available. That They would pounce on her and break up people's marriages. Even among elite single women, they fa often face a lot of stigma and exclusion. There's a very pithy joke from China that you quote, that in China, the, the unmarried women are called leftover women if they're past their 20s, and that there are three genders in, in China, men, women, and women with PhDs. <laughs> I came across that line, and it really seemed, I haven't heard that exact joke, that phrasing in India, but it really captures a lot of what I also witnessed in India. Of course, having a PhD and having a career, and you know, one of the women that you uh, describe in your book is a tenured professor and doing quite well and can afford a really lavish life, not just by Indian standards. She can travel the world, go on fancy vacations, have a beautiful home, and that she came to appreciate all those things much later in life. I think at the beginning, it probably was much harder. Yeah, so that is one. I, I think you're talking about the person I call Maida, who is the main, my main sort of character in the book, who's a close friend of mine. And we happened to just meet by chance in a market one day in Calcutta. And she asked me what I was doing there and why can I speak Bengali? And she and I said, right now I'm studying single women. And she said, you should study me. And she, <laughs> became, she became a close friend and really helper uh, through all of the stages of the project because she herself wanted to meet more single women. She was in search of friends, people she felt like she could get along with because it was, it's hard to find. 
other single women and then married women sometimes don't have the freedom to remain your friend if, if you were friends with them before they got married. So she helped me so much. During the first few years that I knew her, she often was depressed about her single status because she felt excluded by society and lonely and not accepted as a normal person. And she had never wanted to get married when she was young because she was so eager in pursuing her education and seeing the wider world. She didn't want an arranged marriage right within her village region. She grew up in a village from a very poor family that didn't have enough to eat. So she never wanted to marry when she was young, but when she got after she got her PhD and her job, she thought it would be nice to marry now. But again, she was another person who had a kind of mismatched class status. She couldn't marry a village boy. She didn't want to, but yet... The other professor families thought she had a poor background, and so she couldn't marry. And then she thought, okay, I don't need to marry, but I want some friends. I want a community. It took her years to develop that community, and honestly, she helped me so much, and I helped her too. We, she did end up meeting people, and I introduced her to people I thought she'd like, and she's quite happy now. She bought a house in this a really unique place in India called Shantani Ketan, which is a, a lovely country home for many elite Bengalis, surrounded by villages, but itself very cosmopolitan. And there's a university there, and it's where Rabindranath Tagore lived for many years, the famous Bengali poet. And she bought a home there. She has a circle of these cosmopolitan friends, many single women friends now, and she's quite happy. So let's back up just a little bit and talk about the danger for women. It's not just that women are harassed, but there's actually serious danger of assault. And you quote a, a study from 2018 Thomson Reuters Foundation survey about the world's most dangerous countries for women. And India was listed as the most dangerous. And as you point out, the U.S. was the 10th most dangerous. So it's not as if <laughs> the U.S. is all that safe for women either. But I don't know, you know what the statistical difference is in the danger in India versus first place versus 10th place that you don't talk about that. But that's pretty striking. So the, the need for protecting women is real. It's not just control. That's right. I, I don't know enough about how that study was done, the word of study that I quote. It certainly is true that it's dangerous in India. Women can be sexually assaulted and by their own family members, let's say a visiting male cousin or something or uncle also, not just on the streets. But some feminist scholars and public activists in India think that one reason India got top on the list is that there is more attention to sexual assault in India now. There might be more hidden sexual assault in some other nations where possibly the numbers are higher, but they didn't get onto the list because there have been some famous public horrendous rapes that have gotten attention in India and a lot of outcry against them, a lot of activism, public attention. And attempt at real social change to make it safer for women to go to the police, for instance, rather than if they arrive at the police, then they might get harassed by the or assaulted by the police. So there, there's some public good happening to, to make India safer for women. But yes, it is can be dangerous both within the household and out on the streets. And especially if you're not married, there is this idea that you're asking for it somehow, that you're loose and that's and often married women, if they're going to go visit back to their family of origin, then they'll be accompanied. Their brother will come get them to take them back. You, you should be out in public with male kin or male escorts 
Again, because if you're not related, then people will say, why are you with that guy? So it is actually dangerous often. But honestly, a lot of feminists in India, a lot of women I met through this project say that the danger is hyped up as an excuse to control women. That they think that control more than the danger. Yeah. And you describe a government hostile, H-O-S-T-E-L, for single women, working women in India, that there are rules for keeping them safe and chaste. And these are adult women. These are not children, but it's, it sounds like the kind of control that would be in a, a sleepaway summer camp for teenagers. That's true. You know, they have to be in it by a certain hour and they, they have to be controlled in order to keep them safe. Exactly. That's exactly true. So the one thing that's quite interesting in India is there are a lot of working women's hostels in cities. So as it became more common for, uh, over the past several decades for women to work and have jobs, it meant they sometimes had to leave their families to have these jobs. But since it's really hard to find a place to live as a single woman, since apartment landlords often wouldn't want to rent to you. And because the government decided that it was dangerous to have all these single women just working in cities, then uh, many states set up working women's hostels where you could live. So this one I hung out at a lot, did field work there in Calcutta. It's four stories, quite inexpensive to live. The girls and women live three to a room usually, and often living there and working, and their ages could range from young 20s up to 70 or 75. But yeah, strict curfew, you had to be in by nine. If you stayed out later, you had to have a letter from your employer that this was mandatory for your job. And no male visitors are allowed at, at any time. It could be your brother, your father. They couldn't come at any time. So that's even stricter than uh, summer camp, maybe. <laughs> yeah, even stricter than summer camp. There was a, a place there. Okay, there's one big uh, room right down by where the guard sat, where you could meet with a male kin, but the doors had to be open at all time. And even when I was meeting with someone once and we were talking and she closed the door because she wanted to tell me some things, but the guard came and opened the door. Even she and I couldn't just sit there talking with the door closed. Wow, that's really amazing. So getting back to the patriarchal, patrilineal system, I was wondering, is it a, a kind of economic disaster for parents to have only daughters? It's like something out of Fiddler on the Roof, but worse, that it's not just supplying the dowry, but you, don't ha you have no expectations of being cared for in old age necessarily, if all the daughters are, are become married. Yeah, that's, that's right. So that's one reason some families are still large, because they might start with four daughters and really trying to get the son and finally get a son. But people over the years have found ways to manage. One thing I should say, though, is that I have an, another colleague who has been doing research in India on fertility issues and selective abortion of female fetuses. And he finds that parents are agonizing about over just that question you asked. They might love their daughters and they think girls are valuable, but they feel like they really need a son. And so in quite agony after they've had a few daughters, they might choose to abort a female. And the, the abortion, that's a serious problem because there aren't enough women, right? There's, women are, there's fewer women than men now. Yeah, that's right. There are fewer women than men. And the government is trying to, did make selective, sex selective abortion illegal, and uh, that people are still doing it. And feminists and government organizations are spreading messages that girls are valuable too. And also who will marry your sons if you don't save these girls? So there is a skewed gender ratio in India, in China too. China has it even worse, but there is in India. 
And But there are ways to manage. If you only have daughters, there's one traditional way of managing that, and that is to bring in a house son-in-law. So you keep your daughter with you and you bring a wow. son-in-law. In. How does that work? That sounds like that's against the cultural norm. So that can work. It's a little humiliating for the son-in-law guy, but it can work over the years. Usually then the son-in-law would come from a poorer family, a family with less economic resources, and it w- works best if the girl's family has some more resources. So he'll come in and marry her and he then would inherit the house or the land and they would raise their children there. So that's one way to deal with having only daughters. And then in the cities among, again, the more elite people, there are new ways of managing old age, such as old age homes and retirement communities that's on the rise in India. And the cultural ideal of independence that we got to learn to take care of ourselves. We only had daughters. And anyway, some people's sons move abroad or go somewhere else. So there is among the more elite middle classes and elite people in India, this idea that we should cultivate our own independence for older age. Always the elite have more options everywhere. So so you mentioned about inheritance and and in the Hindu Succession Act passed in 1956, so quite a long time ago, and then amended in 2005 and 2020, theoretically giving daughters an equal birthright to inherit family property. But as you say in the book, it's not enforced. It's not uh, followed much of the time. Yeah, it's definitely not enforced. Sometimes a girl or a daughter will inherit some of the land, especially if she doesn't have brothers. And I saw some parents before they would pass away to really try to formally sign over their house or their property to a daughter. But in the majority of cases, actually, the daughter doesn't inherit. And she's considered a whiner or a troublemaker or rude or inappropriate if she were to try to demand her rights to land or start a lawsuit. So it's still what's on paper in these laws is not always played out in practice at all. So that's another reason there's such a pressure to marry because then the woman gets her husband's property. That's more common than the daughter to get her parents' property. Okay, let me just identify the station one more time in case you're just joining us. You're listening to Delving In on KTALLP 101.5 FM, your community radio station in Las Cruces, also streaming at lccommunityradio.org. I'm Stuart Kelter, and my guest today is Sarah Lamb, a professor of cultural anthropology at Brandeis University, and we're talking about her recent book, Being Single in India, Stories of Gender, Exclusion, and Possibility. Let's talk in this last segment about kind of single life and how that's becoming much more common, not just in India, but all over. And it's really kind of one of the things that's fascinating about anthropology, and I, I'm sure you would agree, is that you're, you're studying a foreign culture with a lot of fascination, but you can't help comparing it to what you know from your own culture. And by doing so, suddenly the implicit rules of one's own culture start to become visible. Whereas for most people, it's invisible. It's just, just, it's just a given, and you don't even realize that it's, it's a norm that could be different somewhere else. That's exactly right. That's what I love about anthropology and even teaching introductory anthropology. To my students at Brandeis, it's exciting to learn about other places, but it can be even more transformative and amazing to realize that your own taken-for-granted ideas are not the only ones, and to see your own assumptions and cultural background in a new light. So that is one thing I've really enjoyed about studying India all these years is to be able to turn back and see things more clearly in the United States. In this case, I guess about singlehood also 
aging and gender in general. All the things I study in India, I, I love to compare it to the United States. But as you mentioned, being single is a growing trend around the world. And a lot of scholars have been looking at that trend and celebrating it. The idea is that if you can choose, that, we, that more choices is better. So if you can choose to marry if you want, you can choose to be single if you want, we should all be free and happy. I sometimes think that message that you see in some public media and in some new books that have come out is too celebratory. I don't think we're all as free to choose in any society as, as we might wish. There's such profound social norms pressuring us to do what is considered normal in any society. Singlehood is not always easy. And, and one thing that's unusual, I think, about anthropology today, whether abroad or here, is that norms are changing faster than they ever have before. And it's still not that fast because norms have a way of sticking around, <laughs> but still things are changing. And uh, one, one statistic that you mentioned is that 28% of all U.S. households uh, are made up of a single person, 50% in Japan and in several major European cities. Of course, in India, it's much smaller, only 3.7%. But still, it's becoming a pretty normal thing, at least in urban areas. And I, I think you see that in the U.S. too, that cultural change is much more fluid in, in the cities and urban areas and among educated people than it is in more rural areas, which tend to be more traditional. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I see that around the world. Um, the- the, the, yeah, the urban areas have many, the people that seem to have more choice and flexibility. It is really striking that 28% of the households in the U.S. now are single person. These might be a, a range of types of people and not just people who chose not to marry, but they could be young adults after college, before they marry. They could be divorced people, widowed people. And it's quite considered quite normal to be living alone here. It's easy to find a house to buy or rent if you're alone and people wouldn't think you're odd or that it's dangerous. And that partly fits in with our culture in the U.S. of individuality and independence. And that's one thing that is important to think about in understanding singlehood in India is just it doesn't only have to do with gender, but ideas about personhood and whether it's normal to live alone or not. Most people I know in India don't find it comfortable to live completely alone. And, or even they think it's odd and funny that in US households, people will put their newborn baby in a separate room or in a separate crib. Or or even the guests. Or their guests, <laughs> yeah. And I, in fact, I always welcome it if I'm visiting a Bengali friend or interlocutor who has spent time abroad, because then they know that I might like to finally be alone at the end of the day in my own private room and say, okay, you can have a guest room, but oh, isn't that funny? Americans, they have to explain to their other relatives, oh, Americans like to sleep all alone with the door closed. And I'm like, yes, yes. I, I mean, yeah, as, as, as opposed to the whole family in, in a single room. Right, <laughs> exactly. Even if they have extra rooms, but if guests are visiting, it's more fun to put all your mats on the floor and sleep all together. And just like maybe our American kids having a sleepover with their friends. I can see it both ways. But at any rate, so that's another reason why it can be hard, challenging for people, men or women in India to not marry is because then they might have to live alone. And a lot of people don't find that familiar. Right. So it's not just scary, it's uncomfortable. Yeah. Uncomfortable, unfamiliar, unnerving. Some of the women in this women's working women's hostel liked the fact that they had these roommates and that there's always people around, that the sense of privacy just isn't as uh, valued or sought after for most people in India. 
Now, another a big difference that you alluded to earlier is a really big contrast to our culture is that single women are expected to be sexually chaste, to be celibate, basically. And so being single in the U.S., I think, has connotations of being free to explore relationships, including sexual ones. And there, it definitely is not. You know, among the urban elite and so on, there's more freedom to do, but that would be the exception. Yeah, that's exactly right. So single in India these days, uh, over just the past 10 years or so, there is a new meaning uh, when it's applied to young people, uh, let's say in their 20s in the urban setting. Single can mean the dating type. And that's, again, the very elite. But in Mumbai, big cities like that or Delhi, single could be going to bars and dating. But for the vast majority of people in India, single is supposed to mean celibate, chaste, and another thing uh, we haven't talked about yet is even if you have a child as a single mom, you have to continually in India display that you got this child virtually without having sex. If, if you want the prestige or to get it admitted to a good school, let's say in a city. One woman who had in vitro fertilization to get pregnant, she had to bring letters from her doctor saying that she didn't have sex to get this child. This child came from a sperm donor. Another, also, if you adopted your child, again, this is an adopted child. I didn't have this child through sexual intercourse. So that's all part of the whole system. That So there were, certainly it's, it sounds like there's not nearly the same value on privacy as there would be here. It, it's a perfect stranger can ask about these things and, de- and demand to know. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And you have to get used to that if you're living there. Yeah, I, ha- I have to get used. I have to give up a lot of my own sense of privacy because I went, I took my daughters to India when they were younger and for a semester while I was on sabbatical and they went to an international school in Calcutta and I w- was there without my husband. I was really grilled by several, the headmaster and a few other people. They want to like, do you really have a husband? Are you lying about this? Can you show me pictures of your husband? They didn't want the girls to go to the school if I were as a single mom. So even a even an amazing. American because it and was international school. Yeah, it was called international. There weren't very many international people there, but that was part of its prestige. But yeah, I was an American, but still, I had to have a husband, otherwise my kids could and I could taint the whole school and its reputation. There's the contagion effect again. So what about LGBTQ? people in India, is that much harder to to be in, that, in one of those groups there than here? Are there rights, human rights for them officially? And what's it like? Is it okay? Or much e- I imagine much easier, in, again, in an urban area. Right. That's a, a, such an important question that relates to this project, because right now, same-sex marriage is not allowed in India. It's not legal. So therefore, some of the people in my project who identify as LGBT or Q could not legally marry. And we might not call them single in the United States if they really had, let's say, a lifelong partner. But they were single because legally they couldn't marry. And in most contexts, still, it's hard to be out Within your circle, you can be out with your close friends. It, there's definitely a rising acceptance of LGBTQ um, people and, and themes in India. But for instance, to move in, let's say, with your lover and tell your neighbors that this is my, let's say, lesbian partner, that is still really, you have to be taboo in private and perform that you're just friends living together. But yet, there are some rights. It, under the British colonial rule, then homosexuality, homosexual sex was made illegal. And finally, a few years ago, it's that 
law was thrown out and now it's legal. It's not illegal anymore to have sexual relations with someone of the same sex. And also India recognizes three genders. There is an ancient third gender tradition in India of uh, hedras and the people either born intersex or male, but then identify as hedra. And that a third sex is legally recognized in India. So there are some, India has is more advanced in its acceptance than the U.S. in some respects. So is, was that in a, a kind of religious context or Hindu religious context? Yeah, there's a Hindu version and a Muslim version also of this third sex. And it is, it has religious roots. Those people are supposed to be spiritually and religiously have extra powers and they can bless, they can come invited to weddings and bless people. They could bless you on the street also. Then when they bless you, you're supposed to give some money. The, the group of hedras are both respected with, and also there is stigma surrounding them also. It's an ambiguous category in India, but it does have ancient religious roots. But things got worse for LGBTQ under British rule. Was it bad and then it became worse or it was actually pretty good and got worse? As far as we know, historians and archaeologists, there are signs that there was a wider range of erotic possibilities before the British came. Ancient sculptures of people of different genders and different sexual positions and... Then the British, yeah, they were quite prudish and they, the same-sex sexuality was not allowed and the, they imposed various kinds of order. People think they even made the caste system more rigid than it was originally. So in some ways, things got worse under the British in, in these regards. And there, there's still a lot of anti-gay stigma in India too among many people. It's not only a British heritage. Yeah. And, and then some, there's some discourse in India also that gay rights is something coming from the West and it's not traditionally Indian. So there, there's a lot of debate happening in India, just like there is in the United States on these issues. I guess getting back full circle to the, just the topic of marriage, you quote Rabin Doranath Tagore, the celebrated Bengali poet, as writing in 1925. This was in an English essay entitled The Indian Ideal of Marriage. Quote, that is why in every country, marriage is still more or less a prison house for the confinement of woman with all its guards wearing the badge of the dominant male. Now, this is written by a male writer, which is really interesting, but he really saw it as not just an Indian problem. Mm -hmm, he did. I was moved when I came across that passage of his because I, by the end of doing this project, I... Yes, yeah, started to really feel that what was a key problem in India and around the world was the treatment of women in general. My, the first stories I would hear from single women in India was that it's so hard to be single. That was the main theme I would hear, even though some women wanted me to be sure I didn't only write about gloom and doom, that they were proud of their single lives. But still, the main stories I would hear is this is really hard. Why does our society make this so hard? But then I started to see more clearly also that being married is often extremely difficult in, in India. And it can be difficult around the world for women. And a lot of women in India are married very young and they don't choose their mate. Even if they did choose their mate, it might not work out well. They're vulnerable to staying sometimes in difficult marriages because how are they going to support themselves if they were to leave? It's not just easy to leave and set up a new place. And, and then often they don't have as freedom of movement 
because let's say if their husband or the in-laws don't want them to go out and do something, then they can't go out and do something. So I started to just see even more clearly the gender systems at work. And then I found this nice line by this really renowned Bengali poet and thinker and philosopher about how, yes, marriage is just difficult for women and constraining for women around the world. And still is. And still is. It still is. Of course, not always. Of course, it's changing in the West, especially. It's changing in the West. And in India, it's changing, too, for, for many people. And, and actually, I, I keep on emphasizing that the elite have more choices and privileges. But I know people living in uh, relatively poor rural settings where they've had very happy marriages, where the husband respects the wife, respects the husband. They fell in love, even though if it was an arranged marriage, their parents and relatives chose well. So it's not like everyone who's married is miserable, just like it's not like everyone who is single is miserable. If you're in a situation that's good, or at least pretty good, with good supportive people, and you're not in absolute poverty, then you know the cultural norms just are a given, and there's no reason to even think of rebelling against them. I would think the, re- the rebellion is partly fueled by situations that are next to impossible. Mm-hmm. That's exactly right. And I guess what many of the women that I spent time with for this project really wanted to emphasize to me or to have me stress in my book was that it would be nice if there were more options. Many people can have a happy marriage. Many people should be able to have happy singlehood. It would be nice if there were more options. And one way to create those options for girls and women in India is more education for girls and women and more um, opportunities for employment. And then then the other part of the recipe for change is for the people who are attached to the cultural norms to not fear that those norms will be completely undone by any kind of flexibility or ability of people to live outside those norms. Mm-hmm, that's right. And so in, in all societies experience change, and you do see a lot of it happening in India. And part of it also is more options for living that are springing up, especially in urban areas like the working women's hostels I mentioned, things like old age homes and retirement communities that they see as coming from the West. It's a Western idea, but then it does mean that, oh, if you don't have a son or if you don't get married, oh, there is another way I could live. I could move into this old age home. So you see these possibilities for transformative living situations happening in cities, especially in India. And of course, India has for a long time already had a lot of contact with other cultures. It's not a secluded country in that respect. Of course, the colonialization is one aspect, but also so many Indians studying abroad and then not all of them staying at, in the the country, but many coming back to India. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. So a lot of cultural contact. A lot of cultural contact. And English has become one of the major languages in India, and that helps Indians be really connected to the wider world in terms of social media also and travel and ideas moving back and forth. Is it more the common language than Hindi? Because I know there were what, there were dozens of languages, right? Dozens of languages. Hindi is the official state language, but English really is the language of practice among people from the different language groups if they get together. Most Indians will learn Hindi also in school and also then English. And, and especially if you're elite. A lot of the more elite Indians are more comfortable speaking English because they started doing it at a young age in their schools also. So it's like their 
school hood chat and a lot of consumption of international media. So I'm wondering for in closing, we just have another um, you know minute or two, either tell us about what your next projects are or maybe just a parting message about what's to be learned by this subject. Let's see. I My next project that I'm working on now, I've been doing work on aging in both the U.S. and in India for many years, and I'm critically investigating people's ideas about healthy and successful aging. And it relates to being single also, because a lot of the single women I was studying were worried about what how they were going to make a good old age for themselves. And it's become quite a fad around the world to this idea that we can make our aging really good, to be, a, be in control of our aging and make it as healthy and good as possible. But of course, we're not always fully in control of our lives and choices. And so I'm, I've been really interested in the way people are picking up that message in India and also the way they are really inspired by it, but, but also finding it challenging in the U.S. to, to be completely happy or healthy and in control of your aging. Some things are not easy to control. That sounds like a great next topic. Uh, I know it's not a new topic for you. You've been studying this for quite a while, but uh, when the next book comes out, I'd be delighted to talk to you about that. It would be my pleasure. Okay. So thank you so much for coming on to Delving In. Sarah Lamb, a professor of cultural anthropology at Brandeis University and the author of the recent book, Being Single in India, Stories of Gender Exclusion and Possibility. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. I'm Stuart Kelter, and you have been listening to the podcast edition of Delving In, originally broadcast on KTALLP, the community radio station in Las Cruces, New Mexico. Please visit our website, lccommunityradio.org, and see what KTAL has to offer. We appreciate listener donations to help us stay on the air and to continue to grow in cyberspace.